0: The scripture reading is from Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. So, back when I was in college, my junior year in college, I went on a uh, spring break trip with a bunch of friends um, to the beach, and the, the... like a lot, of, uh, a, lot of, a lot of you, you've probably had this experience where the trip e- quickly becomes about pranks and practical jokes that you play on each other. And, you know, I've had a lot of practical jokes played on me. Uh, I was an RA one year, and I, I, I've, I've been pennied into my room where they take pennies and put them between the door frame so you're stuck in. I've had the 55-gallon trash can full of water leaned up against the door and knock on the door Bradford opens the door, water. I mean, you know, you can imagine. Um, but here's, this is probably, this, this spring break trip provided possibly the best or possibly the worst uh, prank I've ever had played on me. So the week was characterized by us doing things like putting fish in other people's beds and showers, putting buckets of water over doors. You got the picture, right? So um, a couple weeks after this, you know, we fast forward after the trip Trip was fun, trip was over, and we get to final exams. And final exams, everybody's stressed out, everybody's kind of sweating their spring finals. And so a friend of mine who had been on the trip brings by a plate of brownies. Right, you can see where this is going, right? So she brings by a plate of brownies and um, drops them by my room, takes them by a couple other guys' rooms. And um, me being me, me being male, don't say you haven't done this before, I ate them all. All the brownies in one sitting, okay? So I ate them all at the same time. And um, I began to feel kind of funny after that. In my lower gastrointestinal area, I, found, I began to feel a little funny. And I spent the rest of the exam period going between the bathroom and my desk. Because the brownies were faced with... You guessed it, ex-lax, okay? Laxative, it, I don't need to say anymore, okay? I know, the yuck story, why? This is possibly the worst sermon opener ever, okay? But this story that we're reading in Jonah today has a, also has a surprise ending, just like my story with the brownies. Had a surprise ending. I know, that's terrible, isn't it? That's a terrible, terrible sermon introduction. Well, you're here on a holiday weekend. You get the, you know, the extra special. I want to give you something special today. Um, And, you know, this should have been a great story. This should have been uh, the story of Jonah. If it had stopped at the end of chapter 3, would have been a great story. It would have been a delicious ending to the book of Jonah, right? Jonah proceeds like this. Think about it this way. Jonah is called by God. Jonah says, no thanks. He runs as far as he can. God sort of brings him to a place of repentance by means of a fish's belly. He throw, the, the fish vomits up Jonah. Jonah obeys God. It goes and preaches at the city. And it's the greatest revival with the shortest sermon ever. Right? Jonah preaches basically one sentence, five words. God says, repent or else. And 120,000 people turn. And, you know, at that point, everybody should be like, yay, this is the great story. You know, delicious ending, yum, brownies. But then what happens? You get to Jonah chapter 4, and it is the yuck ending, right? I mean, just like I tell you the story about the brownies, and you're sort of shifting in your seats. I see some of you are like, kind of uncomfortable by that story. You know, we should be reading Jonah chapter 4, and have this kind of shifting in our seats like, ugh, This is a yuck ending. Because Jonah 4, it's not nice. Here's what we find. You know, God's prophet has preached the greatest sermon, the shortest sermon to the greatest possible effect. 120,000 people come to God. And then where's Jonah? Where's Jonah? Where's God's man? Where's God's prophet? See what we see about him? You, You can look at three things here very quickly. Look at his face. Verse 1, literally the Bible says in Hebrew, he became evil with the evil he saw. That's not a, that's, that's turning, you know, that's a frown. That's a smile upside down. That's, he's, he's unhappy about this. Second, we see where he's sitting. He is sitting up on a hill overlooking the city. And he's not doing that so he can applaud their repentance He's waiting for God to send lightning. Jonah's saying to himself, it's a good day to die. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. That's Jonah in this moment. Right? Finally, he's praying this prayer. And you see his prayer in verses 2 and 3. He says, this is what I knew would happen. God, you're so freaking gracious. You're so kind. You're so compassionate. You know, basically Jonah is saying, you know, I knew. With the first sight of repentance, and you come running, you just can't stay away from that kind of stuff. Jonah, this is an ugly, yuck picture, right? You know, and Jonah is condemning, he's condescending, he's insecure, he's comparing, he's, he's anxious, he's joyless, he's judgmental, he's self-consumed, he's self-righteous, and who does that sound like? The American church. Sounds like us people. The home team. Good Christian people. People with the, the fish on our bumpers. That's who it sounds like. This is what the world outside the church says of the church. Angry. Judgmental. Condemning. This is the way that we're seen. You know, Jonah, Jonah demonstrates again to us That it's possible to run away from God, but it's possible to run away from God without moving anywhere. Right? Where's Jonah in this story? He's sitting up on a hill. He's built himself a nice little booth, and he's sitting in it. He's not running from God this time, but he shows us that you can be with God's people. You could be worshiping. You could be right here. And yet, you could be, your heart is running a thousand miles away from God and His purposes. It is absolutely possible to be a church person. It's absolutely normal in some ways. I mean, what I want you to get out of this whole thing as you read the book of Jonah is, hey guys, this is us. We're Jonah. It is possible to be absolutely within this group of people, praising God, singing songs, and yet, in your heart to be running. Just like Jonah is. See, the book of Jonah is not a nice story. And it it was written as a rebuke to the nation of Israel and to us. It was written as a rebuke to the nation of Israel. Part of Israel's founding charter had been when God came to Abraham, he said, look, I'm going to bless you so that you might be a blessing to the nations. So that you might bless those people who don't know me, who are outside of Israel... And Israel over and over throughout their history had failed to do that. They had failed to care for the widow and the orphan. They had failed to care for the alien and the stranger. You read the end of the the Old Testament, and it's all about this. The failure of compassion. The failure to be a blessing. And this book was written as a rebuke to God's people. It was written as a rebuke. That's why you get the yuck ending in the book of Jonah. And it's a rebuke to us. See... We look at this story and, and we see within Jonah's heart and within our heart, there are two barriers. There are two barriers to being on God's page. One, we looked at last week, is self-righteousness. The fact that we are apathetic toward the caring about other people, the salvation of other people. And today I want to look at the other barrier, which is, is being self-consumed or self-concerned. You know, now, if Jonah, as I look at this man... I'm like, this is not a happy person. This is a very, very unhappy person. But you know what I think is really fascinating is as you read the, the chapter 4 of the book of Jonah, that there's one word that jumps out at me. I don't know if this jumped out at you as we heard this, as we read this. In verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. The word I want you to show you is this. It's at the end of verse 6, it's the word Happy. Jonah was very happy about the vine. It's the first time you see the word happy anywhere in the book of Jonah. It's the first time you actually see that word, see Jonah happy about anything in the book of Jonah. And you know as we look at this I want to tell you that this book in a lot of ways is about happiness. It doesn't seem like it. it? Seems like it's about a fish and a gross story about running from God and idolatry, it's about all those things, but ultimately, the end of this book is about happiness. Now, you see him, he's happy about the vine, and if you've ever lived in a hot climate, you know that it's one thing to have a house that shades you from the sun, if you've lived in an intense heat, it's another thing, see, that that provides some relief from the heat. But if you have a tree over that house, then that house can really be cool on the inside. And so, Jonah has built this little shelter, and it's provided some relief from the sun. But when the vine grows up over this, when the vine covers his house, it's actually cool on the inside. And Jonah is happy about this. It provides him a sense of relief from the heat. There's a sense of comfort in this. And Jonah is happy about this first. Now look, if you are a Christian, or you've hung around the Christian church, you know we don't talk about happiness a lot. Like... That's not what the Bible's about. It's not, we're not that kind of church. This isn't the Joel Osteen church where God is out to make us all rich and fat and happy. We don't believe that, right? We're, we're, we, we're wise people. Happiness, no. The Bible, the Bible, you know, tells us that God's not out to make you happy. He's out to make you holy. You know, we, we, we know this. We talk about joy. Joy is something else and we can kind of qualify that. But the tr- I mean, let's be for real for a moment. Happiness is what most of us spend a lot of our weeks thinking about. I mean, isn't happiness something that we strive for? Isn't our nation sort of built on this premise of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness? I mean, we're people who are hardwired to look for our happiness. You know, and think about the things that you find happiness in. You have a good hair day. I have a good head day, right? Your team wins. Your fantasy basketball team is pulling ahead. You know, you get a parking spot on Market Street. Who knew? You know, you, you, your golf handicap is low. pitch pr- uh, pitches a perfect game. You know, these are the things we find happiness in, right? And we, we're constantly, we're like the shrimp boats that are out trawling, just kind of moving slowly through the water with the big nets down, just trying to pick up some happiness, That's all of us. That's what we're doing all the time. We're looking for it. But I was struck recently by what an unhappy group of people we are. I went to Haiti last month with our team here from Liberty. And we we were walking around a lot of places. We we went and visited with a lot of people. and And we had a group of us that were half Haitian. They were Haitian interpreters and our American team. And some other folks who are from the United States as well. And we're walking around and... I I just was really struck looking at the Haitians and the Americans together. You know, it it was really fascinating. The Haitian people, for all of their intense suffering, are actually a pretty happy people. Americans, by contrast, when you look at us, and we're not like immediately engaged with you, we look kind of sour. You know, I was amazed. Like, looking at the Haitian people, they smile so readily We all look like we're UN inspectors, you know? We're walking around with our clipboards, and we're looking around, kind of critical, kind of like, no, this is not, it's not measuring up. This is not measuring up. And it was just striking to me how Americans, many of us look like we're critical and we're unhappy. Happiness is such an important concept for us, and yet it's something that's beyond most of our grasp most of the time. See, get this. The only time that Jonah is happy in this book is when he is comfortable, right? When his his life is kind of, he's got enough pillows on the couch. He is comfortable here. And what's fascinating in this story is how quickly his happiness erodes away. He's happy about a vine. God sends a worm who eats the vine. The vine dies. And suddenly Jonah is sitting there shaking his fist at God and saying, kill me now! Now! You know, his happiness is so fragile. I find this is true of me and you. You know, you're having a good day. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much at all for you to, your happiness to be like beyond your grasp. Something happens and it's gone. You know, your hair looks bad. Your team loses. You don't get the parking spot. You get a ticket. Somebody doesn't return your phone call that you've been waiting on. You send out the resume and you get nothing back. You know, our happiness is so fragile, isn't it? The things that we're like, if this would just happen today, it's not a big deal, God. Like, I know you could do this. What's the deal? It's not that hard for you. And our happiness is so fragile. And that's when we get mad at God. And you, you see this prayer of Jonas. He prays it twice in this passage. Twice, God says, do you have any right to be angry? Twice, Jonas says, kill me now! And it sounds ridiculous. I mean, it sounds so foolish. You know, last week we looked at this prayer, because it is a prayer. He's talking to God. That's praying. And he says to God, last week we looked at the prayer of self-righteousness. Kill me now, because I don't want to live in a universe run by a compassionate God like you. That's what Jonah says last week. We looked at self-righteousness. Being self-righteous. This week we're looking at self-concern. And you can see, after the vine dies, Jonah prays another prayer. And it's like this. Kill me now, because if you're not a God who's about my comfort, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Look, before you think this is kind of a dumb story that we don't relate to. I mean, we're not saying, kill me now. Think about what you got angry about this past week. You know, think about the times that you kind of mutter in your head, and you're like, come on, God, really? Really? This is the way this is going to go? You can't do better than this? For real? Or think about the other uh, prayer that we pray. Damn it! That's a prayer. That's where that comes from. See, we are people who are deeply angry When God doesn't show up in the ways that we think He's supposed to show up. You know, you can come in here every week and we could sit in these chairs together and we'd sing at the screen and we say, Praise God, He's the King. Yep, He's in control. So powerful. We love God. Yay, yay. But the truth is that most of the rest of the week we're like, No, I'm the King and God's my janitor. And when he doesn't clean up my life the way I want him to, I get a right to smack him around. Come on, God. What are you doing? See, chapter 4 of Jonah is like an, it's like watching the Colbert Report. You know... There's this episode that they play on the... Uh, Stephen Colbert does over and over called The Formidable in, uh, Opponent. And um, in, the, in this thing that he runs regularly, uh, he takes on what he says is the only critic worthy, worthy of debating, which is himself. So Colbert debates himself about all kinds of things. And in this passage, you see Jonah taking on the only opponent that he thinks is worthy. Here, he takes on God. God, you're not showing up. And God shows himself to be a pretty formidable op- opponent here. You know, he shows himself to be a pretty formidable opponent. Look how gracious God has been, and yet look how Jonah interprets it. So let's just think about, name together the things that God has provided in this book for Jonah. You may name one of them. Audience participation time. Come on. A fish. God provided a fish. What else did God provide? Huh? A vine. God provided a vine. A way out of the fish. All right, I'll I'll help you guys out. This is obviously hard for you guys. So, the beginning, God provides a storm that comes on the sea. Then God provides the short straw, which Jonah draws. And everybody's like, who's the problem here? Jonah's the problem. He provides a fish. He provides a way out of the fish. And then this passage, you see three things where it says God provides... What? A vine? God provides a little worm, and God provides an e- scorching east wind. I mean, this is pretty amazing. God is great at performance art. He should be in the Philly Fringe Festival. This is great stuff. God provide, orchestrates all of this, all of this stuff, to show him one thing. Jonah, your religion is about you. Your religion is about you. And look, when you make Christianity about yourself... When you make it about you, God becomes a formidable opponent. You make God into your enemy. Because you're like, God, you've got to be the janitor and you've got to clean up my life. So it's easy to say, you know, I live for God, but really you live for your vacation, you live for your salary, you live for your weekend, you live for your date, you live for a little downtime at night, you live for that next glass of beer, you live for whatever, fill in the blank. We are always doing this. And when we make life about that, God turns into our formidable opponent. So, you know, God provides this vine and this worm. And God gives him the vine. And then when it goes away, God's like, do you see what I'm trying to show you, Jonah? You're not listening, so I'm going to show you. You care about the plant. You don't have anything to do with that. And when the plant goes away, you're all mad. Because you think I'm supposed to be here for you. I care about this city, which I've had a lot to do in making happen. I've, I've made this thing grow, and I care about it, and I pity it. Don't you care about what I care about? Don't you, aren't you concerned? Um, one of the mentors for us at Liberty early on, and when we were first launching the church... So, a guy named Bill Crispin. And he had been an urban church planter in South Philadelphia years and years ago. And Bill is a guy who has known probably more about the city, have forgotten more about the city than I've ever known. He used to tell us this. He used to say, look, we, love, we are people who love the countryside. We love green space. We love trees. We love wide open places. We think that's what's beautiful. Do you know what God thinks is beautiful? God thinks cities are beautiful. God looks at a city and it's full of people and not trees. And we're like, he's like, that's a beautiful place. We look at the countryside and it's full of trees and not people. And we're like, that's a beautiful place. Why does God love cities so much? Because people are what are made in his image. God loves people. People who are made in his image. And so this is what he's showing to Jonah. Jonah, don't you see? This is what I love. This is what I'm about. You know, listen to God's compassion. What does he say in verse 11? These are people who don't know their left hand from their right. He's not saying they're innocent, because earlier in the book we read about how, you know, it said the evil of this city had gone up before God. They're not innocent. But it's, it's a euphemism. They don't know their right hand from their left. I know who those people are. I have people like that in their, my house. They pull out their shoes... They put the right one on the left foot and the left one on the right foot. They're called children. Right? They put their pants on backwards. You know, I have those people. And it's not that they're innocent. We like to think of that in our culture. It's that they are morally and spiritually unaware. That's the truth of children. And that's the truth here in this passage. And God says, I care about them. They are like children to me. But not you, Jonah. As my friend Chris, a pastor in Chicago, says, Jonah, you don't give a damn about them. Literally. Literally, you don't care about them. You don't give a damn about them. And see, I think that you and I are much like this. We're concerned for all the wrong things. We're concerned for all the wrong things. You know, there's as one writer, uh, this guy, uh, Richard Foster says in his book, The Freedom of Simplicity, he says this, Today there is a heretical teaching that absolutely plagues the American church. It's dogmatic and it's the unexamined credo that goes like this. Whatever we have is ours to do with as we please. He says, look, if you earn $50,000, how you spend it, we think, is your own private affair. Perhaps we will concede that the church is okay to talk about tithing, but After that 10%, the 90% is your business. In no way can you justify that from the Bible. How utterly self-consumed, he writes. Our lifestyle is not our private affair. We dare not allow each person to do what is right in his or her own eyes. The gospel demands more of us. It is obligatory upon us to help each other hammer out the shape of Christian life in the midst of modern affluence. We need to love each other enough to sense our mutual responsibility and accountability. We are literally our brother's and our sister's keeper. God cares. And what we do with our stuff is not a private business. But look what else God says here. Did you notice something weird in this passage? Twice it says, God says, there are 120,000 people in this city and cows and cattle. Now, it's kind of a weird picture. Why does God care so much about cattle? Now, this is not from a commentary. This is just from the wild head of Jeff Bradford. You can take this or leave it. This is a freebie for you this morning. I think that the reason is, this is in there is because Jonah's in a place where he's literally saying, you know what, God, you can make hamburger out of them for all I care. God, they're like animals to me. They're like animals to me. See what, see what Jonah's doing and what we have to do to be, to be self-consumed with our faith. You have to do two things. With God, you have to say, God, I'm the king, you're the janitor. And with other people, you have to be able to say, you know what? They're more like animals than people to me. I don't care. They're just like cows. Make them into hamburger meat for all I care. See, can you read the sign of the plant And the worm. These are pictures not just for Jonah. These are pictures for us. A pastor friend that I have speaks this way about the gospel. He says, look, God is like a tornado. God is like a spiritual tornado. And he sucks you in. He brings you in in order that you might be spun out. In order to spin you out. And we're, as Christians, we're like people who love to be brought in to God. Hey, I want to draw near to God. God is so great. His grace is so never-ending. This is great. I'm drawn into Him. But we hate to be spun out. We hate to be spun out according to His purposes in this world. You know, listen to how we react to a vision of the Christian life that calls us not just to the King, but to His kingdom. You know... We say like this: Look, if I get involved in this ministry, it will uh, mess up my life. You know, if I'm if I'm going to if I'm going to help this person, it might uh, cut into my schedule. It might uh, mess up my finances. It might uh, be inconvenient. It might, uh, you know, mess up my agenda for what this week is going to look like. We're so shocked and surprised when we're like, God would call me to do something that's sort of going to mess up my life? That's going to mess up not my whole life, but this week? Come on. Come on. Look, God is at work in your life. He is not healing you, blessing you, or working in your life for your own good. God doesn't heal you except for to help make you a healer to other people. God is not blessing you except for that you might be a blessing to other people. God doesn't fill you except for that you might go and fill this earth with his glory. You know, you can't grab hold of the king in, in your life and say, I want King Jesus in my life without also being pulled into and spun out in his kingdom process, his kingdom agenda, his kingdom desires for this world. You know, do you remember... The, the green zone in Baghdad, when we, the American forces occupied Baghdad, they set up a green zone. That was the safety area, right? It's where the, like, the, 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 the most important people went, to the green zone. And the green zone was a place where you didn't have to worry about going to sleep at night because it was safe. And the problem with the green zone is that we, as American Christians, want to live our lives in the spiritual green zone. We want God to make this world safe and happy and comfortable for us. All right, God, I just want a place where I can just chill out and be be able to breathe easy. And we're like, you know, if I can just get there for a little while, then I'll be okay to jump into something. If I can just rest for a little while. And God's like, you know, no, I've got bigger purposes. Jonah gets spit out of a fish and God's not like, hey, go take a nap for three or four days. Go take a little sabbatical for three months, and then I'll call you back. God is a sending and a calling God. And His voice is ringing throughout our lives. His voice comes out of the Scripture. It rings throughout our community. And do we listen to it? You know, as we look at this, you know, unless you get get the fact that God is in your life to transform you to be an agent of transformation, then you're missing. You're missing such a huge part of what it means to be a Christian. God is not here just for your own comfort and benefit. Look, we live in a city of 1.5 million people. And Philadelphia is perhaps the most broken city, at least on the East Coast. Nothing works here. You know, our transportation system doesn't really work. Our political system doesn't work. You know, our education system doesn't work. Our tax system doesn't freaking work. Nothing works here. And yet, as Christians, it is so easy for us to be like, me and mine, me and mine, me and mine. This is just about me. Jesus is here to bless me. You know, nothing works here. And God is calling us, brothers and sisters, God is graciously, repeatedly, generously calling us out of a life that's about me. He's saying, look, I got better stuff. You want to know blessing and joy? You want to be happy? Find your happiness in my life and my agenda. You know, we have a group of people at our church, the deacons, and they, they stay up late at night concocting ways, planning, scheming for ways to help pull you out of self and into the problems of this city. These people are like, that's all they can do. They're just coming up with mastermind schemes to get us as a community outside of self to say, you know what, my life is it's worth the disruption. It's worth the cost. It's worth the trouble. It's worth the headache. It's worth the, the aggravation. And they're like, they're bugging. They're, they're, we make their job hard because they are so much long for us to enter into God's joy. Do we care? Do we care? You know, last month, as I mentioned, I was in Haiti, and I was struck. We live, you know, and we we have a territory that is so close to the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. Haiti is so close to some of the richest resorts in the Caribbean. And, you know, walking around and interacting with the Haitian people was profoundly moving for me. We went to this one house and this family, we sat down and we're doing interviews to find out, hey, how can we come alongside you? How can we partner with you? And we sat down, we're doing an interview with this family and it's a family of a husband and a wife and six boys. Man, sounds really familiar to me. And so I'm holding the baby while we're doing the interview and the baby's nose is running, it's got a bronchial infection and it's very clear to me that this baby will not be alive when our team goes back in October. And I was struck. I was like, God, it was so hard to get me, into, get me to Haiti. You know, the director of the mission came and met with us, you know, tried to convince me to go. These guys have been bugging me about it for a long time. And I'm finally like, okay, 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 I'll go. And I get down there, and I'm like, yeah, this is exactly where I need to be. You know, are we being caught up in God's kingdom purposes? And some of you this morning are like, oh, good. You know, I got I got the secret joker in my hand. You know, I can trump this whole hand, that Bradford, that you're playing at me this morning. You're throwing aces, but I got a joker. I got the trump. And wh- what you're saying is, I don't have time. Look, I'm in school. I got plenty of stuff going on. Do you know how many kids we have? You know, you're like, I got crazy job. I'm trying to get into school. I don't have time for this kind of a sermon this morning. And I would tell you that God is not after so much your time, your commitment. I'm not trying to get you to sign up on a piece of paper today. I'm not trying to get you to do anything today. I'm asking you to submit your will. Because submitting your will is way more significant this morning than like signing up for something. You can sign up for something and get the Bradford guilt trip off this morning off your back. Got that monkey, go away. God is calling us to be people who submit our wills to him and say, God, it's not just about my comfort. It's not just about my happiness for this week. Let me tell you a secret. I'm riding home on the plane from Haiti. And I'm writing in my journal and I wrote this phrase, I am happy. You know, I was really absolutely happy coming home on the plane from Haiti. I was going, you know, God, my life being synced up this week with your purposes and caring about stuff that you care about, man, that gave me joy. And I was flipping back through the other parts of my journal and just reading days when I'm kind of self-pitying. I'm like, yeah, I got the Philly beat down week. You know, life's just not working the way I wish it was. And I was just struck. God is saying, look, You want the king? Pull into his kingdom. His kingdom purposes. He's drawing you in to spin you out. One more word before we close. It's this. That you also, on the flip side of this, can't buy into God's kingdom purposes without having the king. See, some of you are this is your job. You're like, man, I'm a social worker, I'm an architect, I'm a realtor, I want to move up in politics. I, I, I have designs on this city. I want to change this place. Yeah, rah, rah, Bradford, good sermon this morning. We need to change this city. And you're like, yes, I know all that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm down with kingdom purposes. But let me tell you this. Unless you have the king in your life you might as well just get in line. You are following up in line for the same burnout that everybody else before you has gone. What makes you so special? You and your kingdom vision, your, your vision for transforming Philly? You know, how many people would not want to look at Jonah 3.8? They gave up their violence and say, oh, that is the perfect plan for Philly. Let's make that happen. Everybody wants that. But unless you have the king in your life, you may have all kinds of great kingdom agenda You may say, I want to see this place change. I want to see this place filled with hope. You know, you're just lining up for burnout like everybody else. Where's your source of joy? Where's your source of power that's going to come from something besides yourself and your energy level? You can't pull the kingdom off without the king. Look, by way of closing, let me say this Christians, we may be the only radicals left. You know, if you go back, what was the great generation of radicals in the last century? Right? The 60s, right? And you go back and you listen to the songs of the 60s, and sometimes I can just laugh. I mean, don't they sound a little syrupy and like utopian and like everything's going to be okay and, you know, there's this song like, if I had a hammer, I'd hammer in the morning, I'd hammer in the evening, I'd hammer out justice all over the land, yeah, yeah. You know, and we all look at that stuff and we're like, that is so silly. How syrupy, how naive. But Christians actually may be able to be the last true radicals left. Because we hear those songs. You can hear those songs, those songs of radical vision and utopia. Hey, God, you know, we, we look at this and we're like, you know, everybody's like, God, I wish this would happen, but nobody's making it happen. And we're in a place of cynicism and despair. But Christians listening to those songs can say, I know that those songs actually have some truth to them. See, we know the once and future king. We know the king who says, I am coming to make all things right. And there will be a day when there will be tears wiped from every eye. When what is unjust will be put right finally and fully and completely. And we're people who say, I know the end of the story. And therefore, we're people who actually can hear the music And say, yeah, I could pick up a hammer and hammer in the morning and the evening and hammer out justice and hammer out freedom. How is this story going to end? You know, I was an English major in college and I love the book of Jonah because it's the perfect literary ending. It's the perfect literary ending. You're left with God saying, shouldn't I pity the city? Shouldn't I care about these people? They don't know their left hand from the right hand and they got lots of cows. And that's the end of the story. It's masterfully written. There's no conclusion. There's nothing said at the end. Like, and Jonah did it. You know why? Because this is the choose-your-own-adventure ending. As a kid, we re- I read all these books and they were called Choose-Your-Own-Adventure. And you could pick what happens next. And, you know, it said if you want this to happen, you go to page 12. If you want this to happen, you go to page 140. God allows us, as he brings this word to us, self-consumed, self-righteous people, and says, how are you going to end this book? What happens? See, you and I, we're Jonah. What is God's next move? What is Jonah's next move? What is God going to do here? What is God writing with your life? What is the story that he is writing with your life? Because you get to write the next page. You get to say what happens next. I'm going to invite us to go to God in prayer together this morning. And to pray silently and just confess our, the degree to which we are people who are self-consumed. I'm Jonah. You're Jonah. What is God calling us to this morning? I want to ask you to take your life, your will in particular... And lay it at his feet and say, God, I may be sitting still, but I'm running on the inside. I'm running from your kingdom purposes. I'm running from the people that you've put all around me. Give me eyes to see and a heart to respond in compassion and to care. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together and I'll lead us to God's table in a moment. Lord Lord God, we come to you and we tell you that you are the king and you are not the janitor. And we lay aside, Lord, the ways that we have manipulated you and been angry at you this week. The ways that we have tried to make you, we've made you into an opponent because we don't think you care for our happiness. Lord God, teach us to find our happiness in you and your purposes. Lord God, we come to you and we confess ways that we have turned people into cattle and that we don't care anything about them. Lord, we come and we ask forgiveness, Lord, for not caring and loving for what you love. We pray, Lord, that you would take our lives and turn them inside out. We pray that you take our church and turn it inside out. We pray you take our home meetings and turn them inside out. We pray you take our schedule and turn it inside out. We pray you take our finances and turn them inside out. Lord, realign us. We confess the ways we've made Christianity about our comfort. And we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to enjoy being brought in, spun into your purposes, that we might be spun out into this world. We pray, Lord God, that, Lord, we would grow in people who love what you love and serve where you call us to serve. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.